Welcome to the Millennial Therapist Podcast with Mao and Nao. This podcast is hosted by two millennial therapists who are true crime, forensic psychology, and macabre obsessed. This is not your typical mental health podcast where only mental health and social work topics are discussed. We dabble in various topics from cultural humility to military mental health to ghosts to interesting ways our parents use the paranormal to discipline us. El cuckoo, anyone? <laughs> Why so many topics? Because we're millennials. To make things more interesting, one is an Air Force veteran and a mom of two, the other is currently serving active duty, and both are children of immigrants working to honor their ancestors. Warning, listener discretion is advised. Thank you for coming back to MTP with Mao and Nao, your favorite millennial therapist and weirdos. This is Mao. This <laughs> angelic voice is Nao. Oh, wait, my bad. No, no, she's Mao. And I'm Nao. <laughs> my bad. Today, we're going to talk about Kiplin Philip Kinkle. Be sure to check in the description for the sources of this episode. Mostly, I'm drawing from Frontline, several of the Oregonian articles, the actual court hearing that occurred for Kiplin. I want to start off by defining something. So what is parasite? According to Google, it's the killing of a parent or other near relative. There's this article talking about, I think it, it was titled something like killer kids or like children that murder their parents. Just kind of like those hook punchlines, right? <laughs> just real cash. <laughs> yeah. So then I, I opened it up and there is like, I think... The list contain about 10 to 14 cases about parasite, and um, all of them just shocks you when you read into every single one of the stories. But one of them that kind of caught my attention because of the amount of information that's out there and, and what ended up following um, uh, the parasite was um, the story of Kiplin Philip Kinkle. So for throughout some of the materials, he's just referred as Kiplin or as Kip. So um, that's what we would we will interchangeably refer to refer to him as. And so in order to you know just trigger warning, there's a lot of uh, mention about firearms, violence, murder, thoughts about suicide, and also school shootings. Please refer to the list of resources that we list if you ever feel that any of the information that we talk about impacts you in any way. Kiplan was born in August 30th, 1982 to Bill Kinkle and Faith Suransky and was raised along with his sister Kristen Kinkle, who was six years older than him. And what I can gather is that he was initially raised in Oregon because according to Frontline, the Kinkles took a sabbatical and decided to move to Spain from 1986 to 1987. And later, the, the articles and the timeline that kind of paint his life story say that he came back to Oregon. At that time, his sister, although she was in the fifth grade, she was placed in the third grade, and Kim struggled because his teacher only spoke Spanish. His sister at that time, Kristen, recalled that this was a very difficult time for Kip. After their sabbatical, the family returned to Oregon, and Kip was enrolled in Waterville Elementary School in Springfield. And per court testimony, Kip's parents and teachers believed that Kip lacked maturity and struggled with emotional and physical development and repeated first grade. During court, his second grade teacher also testified and reported that he was an average second grader with no disciplinary issues. 
Kip experienced difficulty with written language and this would cause him great frustration, so his parents looked into possibly having him placed in special education services. However, Skip scored above, above the 19th percentile rate on the intelligence test and his findings were average for the neurological screening test. So there was nothing okay. that really like abnormal to say. There was no learning disability. Right, so that they could at that time conclude. They only identified remarkably low score on one mortar or hand skills and great challenges with spelling to include his own last name. And this was exacerbated by his level of frustration and anxiety, which they described as high. The teacher described him as, and I quote, he worked diligently for his age. When Kip was in third grade, his father Bill decided to retire and he began to teach night classes at Lincoln Community College. Kim continued to experience issues with reading and writing. However, he was pretty good at math. Per his parents' request in third grade, he was retested for special education and he qualified. And he even received an award at the end of the year for improvement in his hard work and overcoming his frustration towards his struggles with reading. And no, at this point, like there's no behavior problems reported at this time. So there's some academic problems, but nothing that would say like, oh, need some disciplinary actions to be taken right now. In fourth grade, Kip is diagnosed with a learning disability and worked with a special education counselor for that year. Interesting enough, he was also placed in a talented and gifted program because of his above average performance in science and math. He was receiving special education for the written language, like the reading part, but for science and math, he excelled. This is where things kind of start to take a turn here. According to the frontline timeline, it goes from fourth grade and it skips to seventh grade, and this is taking place in 1995. His older sister, Kristen, transferred from University of Oregon to Hawaii Pacific when she received a Fulbright cheerleading scholarship and left home. Kip and some of his friends at this time decided to order online of several or a series of books of how to build bombs. And when they were caught doing this, oh, I know, <laughs> I don't see in this day and age um, not getting tracked by DHS by doing that kind of Google search. Yeah. And that's Department of Homeland Security to all you homies. And when they were caught doing this, his mother became worried about the kind of friends and influence that he's having in his life. Was this in the 90s yes. then? Like like mid-90s? Okay, when internet was starting to yeah. come out. Oh, the good old dial-up days. Do, 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 do. And so in eighth grade, Kim and some of his friends were caught shoplifting for CDs at a Target. In the same year, he bought an old sawed-off shotgun from a friend, which he kept hidden in his, in his room without his parents' knowledge. Oh, okay. Just sawed-off? You heard me say a couple seconds ago, things take a turn here because it did take a whole turn. <laughs> we went from, like, some academic problems to the shoplifting and looking up how to make bombs too high in stem there is an incident discussed in which kemp went to a snowboarding clinic with a friend in bend oregon and this resulted in an arrest of both boys for throwing rocks off a highway overpass sadly one of the rocks struck a car below from the overpass the officer caught kip's friend at the overpass and they found kip back at the hotel where they were staying when the officer went by and uh, went to talk to him kip began to cry when the officer spoke to him and right away asked the officer if anyone was hurt Although Kip claimed it was his friend that threw the rock, they were both arrested and charged and referred to the Department of Youth Services in Eugene, Oregon. His parents were contacted late in the evening to pick up Kip. On January 20th, 1997, his parents took Kip to meet psychologist Dr. Jeffrey Hicks to the rock throwing incident and due to an increasing concern for Kip's behavioral issues. His mother discussed the shoplifting and rock throwing incidents and also Kip's temper. 
And in quotation, she said, extreme interest in guns, knives, and explosives. She also at the time expressed that she was afraid that Kip could harm himself or others. Dr. Hicks, he said, Kip became very tearful when discussing his relationship with his father. He reported that Kip thought his mother viewed him as a good kid with some bad habits, while his father saw him as a bad kid with bad habits. He felt that his father expected or the worst from him. I wonder if it's yeah. because of the internet search. <laughs> oh, you know, just throwing rocks up an overpass, shoplifting. Yeah. Bombs. <laughs> not looking real hot for you. So per Dr. Hicks, he did not find anything indicative of a thought disorder or psychosis and instead diagnosed him with MDD. Overall, his findings described that Kip had difficulty with learning in school and difficulty managing anger. anger. Some angry acting out. Okay, so let's, for our, our uh, listeners and homies that are not, MDD as a major depressive disorder. Mm-hmm, major depressive disorder, yep. That's what he got diagnosed with. For th- Okay, go on. Yeah. And so, you know, at this point, like, we don't know how Kip presented to the doctor. True, what the true, doctor true, true. Saw, and overall, the collateral that he put together. But I guess, you know, at that time, that, that was he, what he concluded. So this is 1997. Okay. So, so Kip was not done with the rock throwing incident because on February 26, 1997, he was taken to the Skipworth Juvenile Facility to meet psychologist Dr. John Crumley. He believed his parents were impressive as they strongly expressed they wanted for Kim for Kip to take responsibility, and he also noted that Kip was appropriately remorseful and straightforward about his part of the crime. And we're taking that from front life from what they gathered. So Dr. Crumley believed that the crime was more, in quotations, boyish, and that there was no real case against Kip because he did not throw the rock. Kip was then directed to complete 32 hours of community service, write an apology letter, and pay for the damages. Um, at this point, like, there's no abnormal findings indicated because of the evaluation. So at this point, he's met with two professionals. As he's meeting with Dr. Higgs, he shows some light improvement in therapy. However, on the fourth session of counseling, although he continues to experience depression and seems less angry, he continues to present with an ongoing interest in explosives. From April 23rd to through the 29th, he is suspended from school for kicking another student that, he, that had shoved him. He was upset that the other student was not punished, and soon after that, he was suspended again for throwing a pencil at another boy. By the sixth counseling session, his mother, Faith, expressed that although his behavior issues had improved, Kip had become quite cynical, and I put that in quotation marks, mm-hmm. quite cynical. Dr. Hicks recommended for Kip to try a trial of antidepressants and further noted, in quotations, Kip had difficulty with learning in school, had difficulty managing his anger, some anger acting on a depression. So he forwarded the note to the family physician and Kip was prescribed 10, uh, 20 milligrams of Prozac with daily dosages. During the seventh session, Kip had been prescribed Prozac for 12 days and he indicated an improvement in symptoms with no side effects. Per Dr. Hicks, he presented less depressed. Although I said things were taking a turn earlier, well, get ready for another turn. On June 27, 1997, Kip's father, Bill, purchases a 9mm Glock with the following provisions. They had come up with an understanding that Kip would do the research on, I guess, what kind of gun to buy and would pay for it out of his own money. He was not allowed to use the gun without his father being there and that the gun would become Kip's once he turned 21 years old. Okay. Why? Why did he need it? Why? Uh, if you're looking at me and Mal right now, we're just looking at each other. <laughs> like, <laughs> this came out in court where 
There was no mention of the gun purchase in his in Dr. Hicks' psychological. And although that in the court testimony, Dr. Hicks stated that Kip told him that Bill had purchased the firearm for him, only after some persistence from Kip, and that it would be kept out of his reach and that it would only be used under supervision. I guess during court, Dr. Hicks was asked he had concerns about buying a gun for Kip when he had just started a trial of Prozac and had excessive interest in guns and firearms, Hicks responded in quotations. No one consulted me about that decision, and yes, I have concerns about that. Kip was finalized treatment on July 30th due to symptom improvement and some of his social circumstances improving. That same summer, Kip bought a 22 pistol from a friend and also kept it hidden from Fuck. So in 1997, Kip became a freshman and things seemed to be going pretty well. And after three months, he discontinued the trial of Prozac. And on September 30th, 1997, Bill, his father, bought him a Ruger 22 semi-automatic rifle with the same conditions as the previous firearms. Oh, hell no. No, you don't need it. And so in the timeline, according to Frontline, around that time, Kip also gave a speech in class on how to make a bomb and show detailed drawings of explosives attached to a clock. In the article, it says that other kids, I guess, didn't find this like unusual or extraordinary because there was another girl in class that gave a speech on how to join the Church of Satan. (laughs) What is going on in this high school? Oregon, the fuck? (laughs) And let me backtrack. I don't hate that she she did (laughs) join the Church of Satan. And let me just put this out there. We are tolerant and respectful of all religions and faiths. I guess the content of the presentations are, I don't have similar experiences to it growing up. (laughs) Yeah, no, especially in the late 90s. That's very brave of them. Good for you, Oregon. And so in between these months, sadly, there is the Pearl, Mississippi school shooting in October 1st, 1997. And the West Patica, Kentucky school shooting in 1997. So in March 24th, 1998, the Jonesboro school shootings happened, and per one of Kip's friends, they were both watching the news coverage at school, so through the, through the TVs that they had at school, and both of them agreed that, in quotations, hey, that's pretty cool. Fuck. It's what? Yeah. Uh. And uh, of course, it's making my stomach sink. Because guess what? It's not cool, you fucking assholes. In May 1998, he was grounded because him, him and some other kids decided to TP another house and used over 400 rolls of toilet paper. And that's per the front line uh, information that I gathered. Somehow they got the count. I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> How so they, they figure that out? They beat the school record but got caught. And Kip's parents were one of the few to actually ground him for the incident. What? So the other parents are like, ah, it's uh, just boys being boys. It's like the school tradition. We did it 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, vandalism. Cool. Right. So on May 1998, a peer named Corey Edward stole a 32 caliber pistol from Scott Keeney, one of his father's friends, and arranged to sell it to Kip over the phone. It is unknown if Kip knew it was stolen at the time. So the next day, Kip shows up to school with $110 in cash and buys the 32 Beretta semi-automatic pistol loaded with a nine-round clip. Uh, Kip plays the gun in the pa- in a paper sack and stored in his locker. Mr. Kinney called the school to report the gun missing and tells them that he believes a, uh, a son of his friends may have stolen it. So he gives a list of kids that could possibly have stolen the gun. And Kip's name was not on that list. Detective Al Wharton happened to be at the school when this was going on. 
So eventually he approached Kip after talking to some of the other kids. 9.15 in the morning, um, Kip got pulled from class and he admitted to having the gun. So both Corey and Kip were arrested and immediately escorted out of the school, police handcuffs, and were suspended from school with possible expulsion. At 11.30... Uh, possible? <laughs> yeah, I know. So at 11.30, Kip was brought to the police station where he was fingerprinted, photographed, and charged with the possession of a firearm in a public building and a, and a felony because the weapon was stolen. After the detective interviewed him, Kip was upset and worried what his parents might think of him. After the detective interviewed him, Kip was upset and worried what his parents might think of him, and he was also scared of what would happen to him. Bill, his dad, picked him up and, and brought him home. And around 1400, 2 o'clock, Richard Bushnell of family friend calls Bill and talked about some options for Kip and how him and Kip were concerned about how Faith the mother may react. So it's not like this family friend they live in a small town so he was kind of just checking in on his friend right and so um, there's an article in which Mr. Bushnell recalls and states Bill surprised me if that had happened to me I would have been in shock I told him that he must be churning inside but he sounded like he was handling it well he told me the only thing that he could do was be positive, and this is per the Oregonian article written in May 24, 1998. And so Bushnell asked Kip how Kip was doing, and so the dad said that the boy was concerned. They are both very worried about how Kip's mother, Faith Kinkle, would handle the news when she returned home from her job as a Spanish teacher at Springfield High School. 1500 Scott Kinney, so this is the guy who the gun was stolen from. He calls Bill because he got wind that Kip had gone arrested and indicated that Bill, uh, you know, at that time, I guess when he spoke with him, he was very upset. He expressed uh, that Bill said, I don't know what to do at this point. Kinney said Bill was distraught and thought Kip was completely out of control. A second call came in at about 3.30 from Kevin Rowan, and this is an English teacher at Thurston High School where Kip was going to school. Dad did not pick up the phone call. Kip did. Kip told him that he had made a mistake and that his father was not there right now. Mr. Bushnell tried home phone again and the machine came on. At that point, the, Mr. Rome told Kip not to worry about the credits for this year, that we would make sure he got those. Then I told him that we would start working on finding him a school to attend next year. The last thing I told him was to keep thinking positively. So I, I guess, you know, several people were concerned. People, several people were checking in on the family. And so it is speculated that around this time that this is when Kip killed his father. For his confession, for his confession, he grabbed the 22 rifle from his bedroom, got ammo from his parents' bedroom, and found his father at the kitchen counter drinking coffee and fired one shot to the back of his, of his head. He then dragged his father's body into the bathroom and covered him in a sheet. Oh, what the hell? And in going through all these articles, there's a lot of speculation as to why he did this. And um, mm -hmm. and when they asked him why he did this, he says, I don't know. Some of the interviews, what they say is that maybe he felt so helpless that he was so afraid what mom might think of him because he was closer to mom that he just he just killed dad. During trial, the psychiatrist that evaluated him goes very in-depth of what the interview was like. And he talks about that how on the way home, he pretty much tells him, like, you're 15, you already have two felonies. Like, I'm disgusted by you. Uh, and so... Um, the dad did. So far, we've talked about a lot of behavioral stuff, but once he's mm -hmm. evaluated, a lot more stuff actually comes out. And this is between... 
1530 and 1600 so between 330 in the afternoon and four o'clock so around four o'clock one of Kip's friends calls and Kip said that his dad went to the store friend told Kip that he had another call waiting and, the, and they just got off the phone so shortly after our 430 one of Bill's students and remember Bill was teaching night classes at the local community college so one of his students calls a home because um, he was supposed to be teaching a night class and Kip said he won't be able to make it because of family problems. So, and this also happens around 4.30. He has a, a three-way call with Tony McCohen and Nick Hyacin. And I guess these are some of his friends. And I quote, Kip is in a three-way call with his friends, Tony McCohen and Nick Hyacin. Kip told them he did not know the gun was Kinney's. He also told them that his dad was out at a bar. He told them that he was worried about what his parents' uh, friends would think of what he did and what his parents would be uh, so embarrassed when people found out. He kept saying, it's over, everything's over, it's done, nothing matters. Kip told Tony and Nick that his stomach was hurting and that he felt like he was going to throw up. He told them that he just wanted the gun, that he knew he shouldn't have done it and that he wasn't planning on doing anything with it. So then Kip went back and forth between being upset and angry. According to Tony, Kip kept asking, where's my mom? When is she going to be home? And so shortly after, he got his answer. And around 6 o'clock, his mother, Faith, arrived home, walked up the garage steps in the house, and he met her and told her, I love you, mom, before firing two shots that struck the back of, of her head and the third pierced her forehead above the left eye. He fired again and this time he hit her on the left cheek and again on her forehead and he put another round in her heart. Jesus! So that's five? So he fired two five shots. Or six. Yeah, it's around five or six. He also covered her body with the sheet and with his father on the bathroom floor covered in a sheet and his mother on the garage floor covered in a, in a sheet. He proceeded to play on his CD player the soundtrack from Romeo and Juliet just on replay. The Leonardo DiCaprio one, though. <laughs> which, which Romeo and Juliet? The following day, on May 21st, 1998, Kip leaves his home at seven, at approximately 7.30, dressed in a long trench coat with a backpack filled with ammunition and three guns, the 22 Ruger rifle, the 9mm Glock, and 22 Ruger semi-automatic pistol. He taped his hunting knife to his leg and drove his mother's vehicle to the school. He parked one block away from school and, walk, and he walked down a dirt path. He took a shortcut past the tennis courts and into the parking lot. At 7.55, he is recorded by school security cameras entering the school and walking down the hallway towards the cafeteria. Per Frontline, on, on the way, he shot Ben Walker and Ryan Atterbury. And these are two of his school peers. And then fired off what remained of the 50-round clip from a 22 caliber semi-automatic and one round from, a, from the 9mm Glock handgun into the cafeteria. By the time Kip was wrestled to the ground by five classmates, two students were dead and 25 others were injured. Officer Dan Bishop was the first to respond to the scene when he arrived. Other students had pinned him down to the floor and while he was pinned and I guess the officer was trying to get him off, um, one of them managed to like punch him in the face for what he had done and they had, at that time, what was said is that he kept making statements such as, I just want to die. 
he was handcuffed and read his Miranda rights. So at 8.50 of that day, the detective that had spoken to him when the Keenings gun was reported stolen, Detective Worthen, he locked him in an interview a room and left the room briefly. I think he went to go get some kind of like a camera equipment. Kip managed to pull out the hunting knife that was taped to his leg. So uh, <gasps> They didn't search his ass? That was, that was like my Jesus. first thought. I was like, was he searched? Was like, uh, what? Like, where was this Fucking hidden? apparently not. Right? And so uh, once the detective returned, Kip charged against the detective and was yelling at him to <gasps> kill him and shoot him. So all this is going wow. on, right? And so eventually the detective got the door between, between them, but Kip began to use the knife near his wrist. And so Warren called for backup and Kip was pepper spraying while the other detective took the knife away. So they had to neutralize him. There's so many things that, that have happened that, like, uh, I'm just I'm just shocked. And so um, at, at 9.08, this is where Kip confesses to the police that he killed his parents. I read the, the transcript and other articles, and uh, I guess the reason why they found out that he had murdered his parents was a detective warden had asked him, well, how's your dad? And he was like, I don't know, he's dead. But I couldn't find it on the transcript, and I might have been just kind of sifting through it, but I couldn't find it, but... So Kip was read his Miranda rights. At that time, he verbalized that he understood his rights. It says that Defector Worthen asked, how's your dad? And he responded that he killed both of his parents. Kip was photographed at that time in order to document his physical condition with his clothes on and that he was allowed to shower and clean up. Per the article, it says, Kip took off his clothes piece by piece and on his chest he had a masking tape in an X form with one 22 caliber bullet and one 9 millimeter bullet underneath. The detective asked him why he had that and Kip said that he put them there in case he ran out of ammunition and he wanted to have one of each in order to reload and kill himself. Yeah, but he had a 9 millimeter and a 22 caliber bullet. I don't think they go into each other. Am I wrong? I don't know. I'm the wrong person to ask, friend. I'm not sure. <laughs> Let me double check, because uh, I'm pretty sure you can't use a 22 on a 9mm. I know you can use a 38 and a 357. It's because I'm mad at this kid. He's a fucking asshole. <laughs> what? That makes no damn sense. He's just being dramatic. So let me read this right. So, uh, in case... Mm-hmm. So, so yes, he said he on his chest he had masking tape in an X form with one point twenty two caliber bullet and one point nine millimeter bullet. Oh, bullet! Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, I thought he had a, a nine millimeter pistol. Oh, and a bullet. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. That makes sense. At nine thirty, um, the bodies of Bill and Faith Kinkle are found. Three Lane County sheriffs, Detective Spence Slater, Detective Pan McComas, and Deputy Pat O'Neill arrived at the Kinkle House. You know what I was saying earlier, where he had to replay the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. That's exactly what they found playing playing very loudly on the stereo and on continuous play. They could see through the glass doors that there were hundreds of rounds of 22 caliber ammunition strewn all over the living room. Police searched Kip's room and found that they thought could be a life bomb constructed from soda cans and one in a fire extinguisher. They immediately evacuated nearby houses and later, Sergeant Jim Fields detonated several explosive devices at the Kinkle home. And here's what they found when they went into the home. They found his confession, and this was a note that he had left on the coffee table. And you guys can click on the on the on the link for the source. But he says, "I have just killed my parents. I don't know what is happening. 
I love, I love my mom and dad so much. I just got two felonies on my record. My parents can't take that. It would destroy them. The, embar the embarrassment would be too much for them. They couldn't live with themselves. I'm so sorry. I am a horrible son. I wish I had been aborted. I destroy everything I touch. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I didn't deserve them. They were wonderful people. It's not their fault or the fault of any person, organization, or television show. My head just doesn't work right. God damn these voices inside my head. I want to die. I want to be gone. But I have to kill people. I don't know why. I am so sorry. Why did God do this to me? I have never been happy. I wish I was happy. I wish I made my mother proud. I am nothing. I tried so hard to find happiness, but you know me. I hate everything. I have no other choice. What have I become? I am so sorry. At 9.51, Detective Warren begins to record the interview with Kinkle. Of course, he starts off with, This is Detective Warren, Springfield Police Department. Today's date is Thursday, May 21st, 1998. The time is 9.51. This will be a taped conversation with the last name of Kinkle, K-I-N-K-E-L, first of Kipland, K-I-P-L-A-N-D, middle of Philip, P-H-I-L-I-P, date of birth, August 30th, 1982. The detective asks, Had your dad not said some pretty mean things to you, like, you know, He's embarrassed. Your mom's going to be embarrassed. All her friends are going to be embarrassed. Had he not said those things, would there have been a different outcome? He said, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, okay. How long from the time that he said those things that it was it between the time that he last said those things and the time that you shot him? He said, I don't know. And so to a lot of it, he just says, I, I don't know. Kip had his arraignment on May 22nd, 1998, and he was charged with four counts of aggravated murder. He was indicted on June 16, 1998, and he was indicted on 58 felony charges, including four counts of aggravated murder. And so I'm guessing that they added on, like, the people that he had injured, um, possession of firearms. They asked Dr. Oren Bolstad, who is a clinical psychologist who treats young killers in Oregon's juvenile prisons. And he was the one that mm -hmm. examined and evaluated Kipfer for the defense. They asked him straightforward in his testimony, did he reveal hallucinations he had experienced to you? And he said he did. Um, he's also asked, when did he say he first started experiencing voices? And at the time, uh, Dr. Bostad said he indicated to me that he first started hearing voices when he was 12 years old. He even talks about the first time that Kip starts hearing voices. And so uh, according to him, he got off the school bus, in quotations, and I quote, I was on my driveway looking at some bushes and a voice said, you need to kill everyone, every, everyone in the world. He stated to me, it scared the, the shit out of me. I was confused. It seemed like something was seriously wrong. I ran into the house and cried in my room. I said other things too. It said, hmm. you're a stupid piece of shit. You aren't worth anything. And some jumble words that I can't understand. I was just standing there looking at the bushes. He asked him, where do you think the voices came from? And he said, well, I have some theories. I was an atheist or an agnostic. I'm not sure. Maybe it was from the devil. I also thought that the government might have put a chip in my head. Government satellites might have transmitted to the chip in my head. At first, I thought the voices were outside of my head because they were so loud. They were they were very loud, like surround sound. He also described the voices as, I often hear two voices at the same time. Sometimes a third voice. I know they are different. They sound different. The doctor gave them labels A, B, and C. Uh, and the doctor that he was referring to here was Dr. Pincus. And I guess maybe that was somebody else on his treatment team. I'm not sure. So one mm -hmm. voice always tells me what to do. It's authoritarian, loud. The doctor gave that voice a title A. The B voice tells me I'm a piece of shit. I'm like that, a put-down kind of voice. He said, they scared the shit out of me. I get pissed. I get angry hearing these voices. I was very, very pissed I got it. I believed in him. What is this? Why do I have these voices? So he's hearing these voices, right? 
and they're, and they're kind of like command in nature, eventually is what we learn. Not only does he describe like the nature and the content of the voices, he also describes what kind of delusions he was experiencing. This is what Dr. Balstead described. Yes, in talking with him about his feelings that he needed to warm himself and protect himself, I asked him why, and he indicated to me that he had fears that the Chinese were going to evade, like after a bombing with a nuclear weapon. He thought that he was, he was particularly worried about the second wave of an attack. He thought he would survive the first wave because he lived where he did. He was very concerned about how the Chinese, and I quote, they bragged that they have a billion people and 200 million in the military. They are so huge, they have nuclear weapons, seem like I would end up fighting them. I have lots of fantasies about fighting the Chinese. Mm. He was also very concerned about a plague, like the stand by Stephen King. He felt like he needed to accumulate mm. food supplies. He thought he would have liked to have built a bomb shelter. He had the money, if he had the stuff to build a bomb, he would build a bomb. He wanted to learn how to build bombs in case he would need it. He also thought about the end of the world. He thought about society falling apart, and he worried a lot about that. And so, wow. He, so that makes sense. Yeah. On why he was doing all the research on the bombs and like hoarding yeah. the firearms. Especially if some of us have started like at twelve. If you share this with somebody, of course, fears or stigma, you kind of don't know who to turn to. Which is interesting because based on Western whatever, they always say psychosis and psychotic breaks don't come until late adolescence, early adulthood. So that's kind of early. I imagine he's like European white kid. So that's interesting that 12, not to say that that wasn't true, but that's just an interesting thing for me that he was so young. I haven't worked with a huge population struggling with schizophrenia, so brushing up on it as we speak. And schizophrenia is a real confusing one for me, too, because a lot of people think it's like cut and drive, like, oh, delusions, hallucinations, you know, H-I-S-I, but like, you are doing a dangerous thing as a clinician if you are going to think of it that black and white, because you have to acknowledge the cultural background of that person, their ethnic background, who they are, because in my trauma class that I took, Dr. Leanna Gatto, you were amazing and you changed my life, she really spoke to just how a lot of trauma responses present, like schizophrenic symptoms when told to a clinical person or a person that, you know, is familiar with it, because say you experienced PTSD flashbacks, right? She had a client that she was working with that was like heavily abused and neglected as a child. So when she would get stressed, she would have these visual hallucinations, quote unquote visual hallucinations of bugs going up and down the walls. When my professor would explore that more, essentially was, was flashback to when she was a child. That's where we can't, as clinical professionals, immediately pathologize that it is you know schizophrenic break or a psychotic break or a delusion because it could be another symptom little boy that i worked with he was of mexican descent he was born in the states but his parents had immigrated he got referred to me because he was hearing voices in his head he was a really good student wasn't really bullying kids or anything like that but could become aggressive his teacher had sent um, a referral to me and i was an outpatient therapist at the school i would talk to him about and he was giving me the real like standard these voices sound like a man it's telling me that i'm stupid and that i should hurt my friends and i'm like oh shit okay tell me more and you know doing the risk assessment he was not danger of hurting himself or his friends and I was uh, exploring like his protective factors of like why don't you just hit your friend in the face he's like well because I'll, I'll get in trouble I'm like that's a good point yes don't hit your friend and I'm like when do you want to hit your friend in the face he's like 
when they take the ball from me. What these voices he is hearing, thinking is an outside entity in what other people are kind of pathologizing. They're his thoughts. They're his conscience. And I think he doesn't have the verbiage and vocabulary. It's new for him too. He started noticing them at three. And I think that's where we're more conscious of memories and, you know, behavioral regulation. But he was just a real amazing sweet kid. But it was really interesting where I'm like, holy shit. Like, I thought I was going to have a typical kiddo with schizophrenia. But the more I saw him, the more I was like, absolutely not. He does not show any of those. He was very functioning. And I was just like, oh, baby, you're just... You just have thoughts. You're just staying out of trouble. Good for you. He also interviewed the sister. At that time, the sister said that he also had peculiar notions about the Disney Corporation. So he asked him about this name and the first time that he kind of sees a change and he describes them as animated. He told them that over the next 15 years, the Disney dollar would take over the American dollar. They're also taking over the news industry, entertainment, ABC News. It's a monopoly. They use a fuzzy mouse as a mascot. It lets them get away with all kinds of stuff. If Iraq would just use the fuzzy mascot, they would have a better image. No one goes after Disney because of Mickey Mouse. Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. And he said that in a very cynical, agitated, and irritated manner. He also felt that he had a lot of concerns about censorship. He felt like music was being censored. He made reference to how censorship works, and he referenced Castro, Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong, yeah. No relation, because he's a, he's a Chinese communist, not my grandpa. <laughs> Stalin, and he said, consult the, the experts, censorship works. And then he told me that they are putting chips in the back of sex criminals. He said that I don't need to worry about that because I'm not a sex criminal. But I think about that, that the government could take control of us. If someone put a chip in me, I would take it out. The government is experimenting right now. Look at the X-Files. And they told me when they did an MRI, I thought that they would find a chip or something in my head put there by the government. And so he believes that the chip can produce voices and he said maybe that's the way they're controlling me and he went on to tell me that the government was controlling hinkley maybe and when he told me he thought the disney thing probably sounded stupid to me because it sounds stupid to criticize disney but behind it there are greedy corporations taking over america and he went on and on about this he finally told him no one of average intelligence sees it with the disney you have to be smarter happiest place on earth haha well, lastly, it's not just the content of what's said, it's sort of the way it's said. And that's said with a conviction that is characteristic of delusions. It's also said with a quality of grandiosity when, when he said, I can, he's distinguished himself from most everyone else in a grandiose way. That clustering of symptoms, I think, illustrate delusions quite well, as well as grandiosity. And these are symptoms of psychotic thinking. Lastly, the doctor, when they're asking him about the, the diagnosis, he said, well, I did with some of the same qualifiers. I think diagnosing adolescents is difficult. Adolescent symptoms change as they develop and get older. What I'm clear about is he has psychotic symptoms. I'm clear that he has a mental illness. I believe that most of his symptoms are consistent with schizophrenia paranoid type. Although I can hear rule out schizoaffective disorder, I think that's a real possibility. Schizoaffective disorder is a combination of schizophrenia with depression. I also can't rule out a bipolar type of affective disorder because he has a lot of manic symptoms as well, so it's still a bit confusing as to exactly the nature of his diagnosis. But I'm confident that he is mentally ill. I'm confident that he is psychotic. He has also a learning disorder. He has generalized anxiety disorder and major depressive disorder. 
not that I saw him, but so far what I've read and what I see, I can see how these are comorbid. For sure. As, as a lot of mental health diagnoses are, because they kind of intertwine together. Because you hear about how you have specific diagnoses. They're like, and then specify if it's depressive type, bipolar type. It's confusing. <laughs> and so in September 24th, Kip pled guilty to four counts of murder and 26 counts of attempted murder. On the sentencing hearing on November 2nd, 1999, and I quote from Frontline, after a six-day hearing that included the testimony of psychiatrists and psychologists who interviewed Kip, the victim's statement, his sister's statement, Lane County Circuit Judge Lane County Circuit Judge Jack Madison sentenced Kip to 111 years in prison without the possibility of parole. And it's important to notate here that in one of the sources I had read that at that time, he declined having a sanity plea or sanity trial. I guess for him that would confirm that he's mentally ill. He left a statement for the victims at the end of trial. He said, I have spent days trying to figure out what I want to say. I have crumpled up dozens of pieces of paper and disregarded even more ideas. I have thought about what I could say that might make people feel just a little bit better, but I have come to the realization that it really doesn't matter what I say, because there is nothing I can do to take away any of the pain and destruction I have caused. I absolutely loved my parents and had no reason to kill them. I had no reason to dislike, kill, or try to kill anyone at Thurston. I'm truly sorry that this has happened. I have gone back in my mind hundreds of times and changed one detail, one small event, so this never would have happened. I wish I could. I take full responsibility for my actions. These events have pulled me down into a state of deterioration and self-loathing that I didn't know existed. I am very sorry for everything I have done and for what I have become. And keep in mind that like at this point, Kip is 15 years old when this happens, right? And I found this article from the Oregonian from January 2019. And it states, and I quote, Kinkle tried to use a landmark U.S. Supreme Court ruling to have his case reviewed. The high court ruled 5-4 in Miller v. Alabama that the mandatory true life sentences for the boys at that time, I guess there was another murder case, tried as adults and convicted of murder, violated the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. The court left open the possibility that minors under age 18 still could be sentenced to life without parole, but only if the sentencing judge makes a finding that the penalty is appropriate, weighing the defendant's character and details of the crime. The state Supreme Court's majority ruling of affirmed decisions by Lake County Circuit Judge Jack Madison in the Oregon Court of Appeals, which found Kinkle's sentence constitutional. And so he's tried to appeal this several times. And I think even uh, Dr. Boston was asked, like, do you think he should be released? And he said, I cannot predict behavior. However, if he had consistent treatment and he was engaged, that would be the only way. Don't take me word for word, but that's what I took. There's other cases of familiacide where when a parent kills like the whole family in just listening to the different cases, it sounds like the pattern is like the husband or the mom will have killed them because they're like going bankrupt or they're they lost their job and they're like well i killed them to spare them from the stress and the hard life so that reminded me a little bit of what kip had said was that he was so worried about what mom was gonna think about being in trouble that it just kept escalating the dad was already saying like i'm so disappointed in you so he said like i didn't want them to go through it 
that anymore. I did it for them. I did it so they didn't have to hurt anymore. Like completely fucking irrational, obviously, because killing someone's not the, the answer. I've heard more than once is that death is a way to help ease their pain instead of like suicide to ease your pain, homicide. I don't know. Don't do it. Another thing that I found interesting was that um, there's actually a letter of him and his handwriting being or was auctioned through the true crime auction house. I can't I can hardly read what he wrote. I was like, oh, wow, people people buy these people sell these. What? So does he have the full schizophrenia disorder diagnosis? Is that essentially what? The diagnostic criteria, I know it's outlined like this for us to have an outline, but where the juice is at is the, the diagnostic features. <laughs> and so I always like reading that better. But it says here, so for criterion A, two or more of the following each present for a significant portion of time during a one-month period or less if successfully treated. At least one of these must be um, one, two, or three. Delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, for example, frequent derailment or incoherence, grossly disorganized, catatonic behavior, and negative symptoms such as diminished emotional expression or abolition. So there's the delusions, there's the hallucinations, and then there's the negative symptoms. I don't know if he ever presented catatonic or just completely disorganized or with just completely derailed speech or that the doctors reported. And then when he presented to the doctor, I guess he just had completely like flat affect. For criterion B, for a significant portion of the time since the onset of the disturbance, level of functioning in one or more major areas such as work, interpersonal relationships, or self-care is markedly below the level achieved prior to the onset. And uh, when the onset is in childhood or in adolescence, there is failure to achieve expected level in interpersonal, academic, or occupational functioning. So it sounded like he was doing like his grades were okay, but just the behavioral side was just getting out of hand. Continuous signs of the disturbance persist for at least six months. The six-month period must include at least one month of symptoms or less if successfully treated. And I think at this point they had said that the onset of the hallucination started when he was 12. Schizoaffective disorder and depressive or bipolar disorder with psychotic features have been ruled out because either one, no major depressive or manic episodes have occurred concurrently with the active face symptoms, and two, if mood episodes have occurred during active phase symptoms, they have been present for a minority of the total duration of the active and residual periods of the illness. So I think the doctor actually said he could not rule these out. He could not rule schizoaffective or bipolar, but he did give him GAD and MDD. But I'm guessing, and, and here's like this the part two where somebody becomes deteriorated with schizophrenia, they neglect almost all basic needs. And so I wonder if he was seeing like a, a decreased need for sleep because maybe he was preoccupied or fixated with some of the symptoms of schizophrenia. You'll see hallucinations sometimes with manic face for bipolar. You'll see hallucinations sometimes in extreme forms of depression. So it's characteristic of pretty serious mental illnesses. So I'm guessing he just had a lot going on that it was kind of hard to put his finger on, on some of them. But for sure he knew that the leading one, the one that pretty much covered everything that he presented with was, was schizophrenia right not that we saw but yeah i think definitely the delusions and the hallucinations he met that which is enough because you only need two or more so once he started getting into trouble that's when he saw dr hicks was it uh, for nine sessions and so i think part of and i forgot where i read it were people wondering like um after you know Everything that you saw, do you think like the treatment was kind of premature? 
and, and termination, but you know, we can only treat what we see. Right. As the assessing clinician, if you're not privy or familiar with that diminished emotional expression, like you had mentioned, it could look like depression because it could look like sadness. What's the other word for being hella tired? Not fatigued, but like catatonia or apathy. Just a sad case overall. And uh, when I was reading about the parasite, I didn't think it was going to lead to a school shooting. All these other ones talked about either teenagers killing their parents in order to run off with a boyfriend or adult siblings killing their parents for their inheritance, like the Menendez brothers in California. And so um, I was kind of like, oh my God, (laughs) I was really shocked when I read that all together. So diagnosis aside, peeling back the diagnosis of schizophrenia, schizoaffective, like there are many people that live with those disorders that do not murder their parents or go on a shooting spree. But I think the factors that have led to him that popping out in my mind was his access to those fucking firearms. Had he not had access to them shits, he would have not hurt and killed that many people. Because when somebody's having homicidal ideation, which is kind of normal, like lots of people have homicidal, like I'm so mad I want to kill them. But are you going to do it? <laughs> like, that's the difference, right? Same thing as having suicidal ideation. Everybody has suicidal ideation, passive or active. But it's intent and plan and access. And little motherfucker had access to it. Yeah, no, definitely. Like, there's help out there. And I know with, with these, especially, and, and it doesn't really, like we were saying, like, it doesn't matter if it's schizophrenia or schizophrenic form or schizoaffective. There's something going on that was definitely impacting his his, uh, his level of functioning um, and, and not just getting deteriorated to the point where he needed medication because his mood was so low and it was difficult to kind of manage his behavior at school. It's, it's, it's hard and it's difficult. And like you said, we don't have like the solutions. Um, this happened in 1998. And since then, there's been several changes to the DSM. There's been different trials of medication that they develop. There's been different treatment modalities that have also come about that have helped people with schizophrenia or psychotic disorders uh, kind of help manage the symptoms because to this day, there's, there is no cure. Highly recommend professional help or kind of reaching out to your local mental health state authority in order to learn what's out there in case you know somebody might be struggling. Maybe you're just curious like what's out there. And so sadly, 11 months after the Thurston tragedy, according to... A news report that I will attach the link for. This scene was repeated in Littleton, Colorado, where high school seniors Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold brought an arsenal of weapons into Columbine High School in April 1999 and opened fire. And that's a whole nother episode if we get to cover it. It happened 11 months after. And I think even uh, a Kip, I think he took responsibility for that. Damn, that was a heavy heavy one and so much to really unpack and process too because shit not only was it a school shooting but it was also the murder of his parents who he clearly loved so much you know like that's that's just wild that was the kibble and phil and kinkle case thank you everyone for tuning in and we look forward to bringing more stories to you till next time homies Thank you for joining us and be sure to come back next week where we continue to explore true crime.
psychology, the paranormal, mental health, and everything in between. We would love to hear from you. So email us at millennialtherapistspod at gmail.com with your ghost stories, paranormal experiences, questions about therapy and counseling, or the social work field. And don't forget to share, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Remember, you are valued, you are enough, and you are not alone. Please subscribe and review. Bye-bye. Although we are licensed mental health therapists and may cover therapy-related subjects, the topics in this podcast should not substitute professional, psychological, or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you are a victim of a crime which includes but not limited to stalking, human trafficking, financial crimes, or sexual assault, please know the Victim Connect Resource Center can help. They are a referral helpline where crime victims can learn about their rights and options confidentially and compassionately. A traditional telephone-based helpline is one 855 victim or one 855 or you can connect with them at chat.victimconnect.org or at the website victimconnect.org. If you or someone you know is in crisis, whether they are considering suicide or not, please call the toll-free lifeline available 24-7 across the United States by calling one 800 273 8255 or visit org. U.S. and Canadian listeners can also text HOME to 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor. UK listeners text HOME to 85258 and Ireland listeners text HOME to 50808. For more mental health resources and support, international listeners can visit the website unitedgmh.org slash mental-health-support to find more mental health services and resources. And if you are a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, connect with the Veteran Crisis Line to reach caring, qualified responders with the Department of Veterans Affairs at 1-800-273-8255 and press 1 or text 838-255. Or you can always visit veteranscrisisline.net. If you or anyone you know may be experiencing domestic violence, you can find resources and support with the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Visit thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-7233.